Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 in our Bibles this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll tell you, it's been warm enough outside and it just kind of looks like it should be spring. When I was looking out yesterday, I thought, you know, it should be spring, but it's not. And uh, so I've told my children that it's not spring. I don't expect anything to grow for at least uh, a couple more months. But uh, boy, it, it was the sun comes out and we just expect things to start to sprout, don't we, here in Michigan. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is where you're at. And I want to ask you a question as we begin our study here this morning in chapter 4. And that is this, uh, whatever it is that you're facing um, in your life, uh, do you have what you need? Do you have what you need? And uh, you might say it's financial, maybe that's what's on your mind, or maybe it's um, emotional, maybe you just feel emotionally drained and worn out, or maybe it's spiritual. Um, But do you have everything you need to live uh, the life that you've been called to live, the life that you're going through? How's your everyday walk with God? Are you worn out? Are you... Do you feel like you've been trampled? Um, or do you, have, do you have what you need? Have you ever been there where you're not sure exactly if you had what you need? We've talked about that a little bit. Maybe lacking wisdom. Um, my dad and I spent some time together this past week, and he's recovering from open-heart surgery. He's doing really well. Many of you have asked about him. Um, but he's not behaving like he normally behaves. Um, he's not... Uh, you know, we, we had planned to cut down five big ash trees and, you know, big, big trees, you know. And uh, that's been postponed. He's, he's sitting there when he coughs. He puts this pillow over his chest to hold his sternum together when he coughs so it won't separate. And he's doing really, really well. But, but we, we were talking about how life changes as you go through life. And he was reminiscing how we used to swim in college competitively and setting uh, state records at Pershing High School when he was in high school. And things are a lot different. He's going to cough again. Here comes the pillow. A lot has changed, right? Life changes. And, uh, and I've seen that. I'm, I'm 38 years old. Um, but even in my own life, things change. Um, Cindy looked at me yesterday, and, sh- and uh, she said, you know, she said, uh, uh, how did she say this? She said, I, it dawned on me the other, this week that, that uh, you're not invincible. And I was like, that's a double whammy. I mean, on the one hand, I was like, you thought I was invincible? (laughs) And on the other hand, I was like, she doesn't think I'm invincible anymore. But it it was dawning on her that I'm getting older, (laughs) is what she said. Not in those words, but that's what she was meaning. We had a good laugh about that. But life changes. Life changes. But you know what? Through life, no matter the changes in life, no matter what our ages are, no matter what challenges life may be throwing at us, the truth that the Apostle Paul is driving home, and he really has laid an incredible foundation for this truth, for the application is that God has provisioned us with everything that we need for what he has for us to do. And so no matter where you are, no matter what your job is, your employment, no matter what your, the state of your marriage, no matter the age of your children, uh, no matter your health, um, as a born-again child of God, as someone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, God Almighty has provisioned you, has equipped you with everything that you need. And yet... Sometimes we go through life with the attitude that we don't have what we need. And uh, we live like a pauper. We live, we live like a beggar when actually we have everything, everything that we need. In, I think it's A.W. Tozer's book, he writes about that. Um, Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman had meetings some many, many years ago and in those, in those particular meetings in those days, a man arose uh, to give a remarkable testimony, and this is what the man said, and I'll quote him. He said, I got off the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. 
as a beggar. And for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? And as soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? And throwing his arms around me with tears, he said, Oh, my son, I found you, I found you. A dime? A dime? All I have belongs to you. And then this man, in his testimony, said, Men, think of it. I was, a, I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for ten cents when for eighteen years he had been looking for me to give me all that he was worth. And then he says, listen, don't ask your heavenly father for a dime. Don't go through life, you know, if I just had this. I'm, see what I'm missing? I, I'm missing this financially, or I'm missing this um, um, in wisdom, or I'm missing that I don't have what I need. Don't go through life thinking about what you don't have, but take all that God has to give you and desires to give you. Don't live as a beggar, he, he writes, on a pittance, when the resources are there to live as a king to the glory of God. You know, all of the Pauline epistles, and there are many of them in the New Testament, but all of the Pauline epistles have this wonderful balance between doctrine and application, or doctrine and duty. And we've been seeing this very clearly in Ephesians. The first three chapters dealt with doctrine. He was talking about our riches in Christ, and the last three chapters explain our duty, our responsibilities in Christ. The key word, I think, in the first half of the book the first three chapters, the, the key word could easily be identified as wealth. You're wealthy. You're extremely rich in Christ and what he's provided for you. In the second half of the book, the key word could be walk. Walk. Because of the wealth that you have, it ought to influence and impact our walk, how we live. In fact, look here in chapter 4 and verse number 1. He says in the middle part, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Look down to verse number 17, still in chapter 4. And in chapter, 17, or chapter 4 and verse 17, he says, Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Don't walk this way, but walk this way. Don't live this way, but live this way. Look in chapter 5 in verse number 2. He says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You're still in chapter 5. Look at verse number 8. Verse number 8, he says, for ye were sometime, sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then look down to one last verse in verse number 15 of chapter 5. He says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Isn't it true that you and I, even as born-again children of God, and Paul identified this in the church at Ephesus, it was true. They could choose how they were going to live their lives. They were, each of them, going to decide, make a decision, how they were going to walk. Were they going to walk as wise people in the Lord? Or were they going to walk, he says, as fools? Is it possible for me to walk as a fool? Yeah, some of you were quick to answer that with your head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure it is. Pastor, I saw you. No. It's possible, it is. It's possible for me to play the fool. Even as someone who's saved, it's possible for me to walk in the flesh and sow to the flesh and live like I'm poor and like I don't have what I need. Or it's possible for me to take the teaching of the Word of God, the doctrine that we have studied now for several months in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and consider the riches that we have in Christ. And it's possible for me to apply that to my life. And it's possible for it to so change the way that I think that instead of living like I don't have anything living in discouragement, in despair, hopelessness. Some believers even 
falling into to depression, it's possible for a believer to live with the joy of the Lord, a hope in God for every situation. And so Paul is saying, based upon what I have told you, your wealth, chapters 1 through 3, I want you to walk accordingly. Look at our text now, chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1. I'm just going to read down through verse number 6. That's all we're going to have time to look at this morning, uh, verses 1 through 6. And let's read it, uh, beginning in verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Which verse 6 clearly indicates that God is all in, and I'm putting that in human terms, but he is completely dedicated to accomplishing his purpose in you and in me. Our responsibility is to walk worthy of the vocation that he's called us to walk. And it's not just a vocation, a calling to a pastor. It's a vocation. It's the calling of every single child of God. Based upon your wealth, the wealth of God at your disposal, at work in your life, walk worthy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at these verses. May it not just be another sermon or another uh, Sunday morning at church, but Father, I pray that our hearts would be humble before you, that we'd be teachable, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us. Help us to understand some truths that we may not be aware of. And God, I pray that we as individuals and as a church would walk worthy. Father, you've given us what we need. I pray that we'd walk accordingly. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now again, in the first three chapters, in the last three chapters, Paul admonished, or excuse me, in the last three chapters of this book, Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, what Paul is doing is he's admonishing us to walk to walk worthy. And he says, walk worthy in verse number one of chapter four. In, the, in the, these last three chapters, he's going to say, walk in unity. He's going to say, walk in purity. He's going to say, walk in harmony with God. And he's going to say, walk in victory. Uh, don't walk in defeat. Don't, don't live in defeat. And really, those four walks that he's going to talk about in these last three chapters parallel perfectly the doctrine that he's been teaching us in the first three chapters. In in the last three chapters, Paul is literally going to tell us how we need to live our Christian lives. He's actually going to tell us how a wife is to interact with her husband. That's pretty practical. He's going to tell husbands how they are to interact with their wives. He's going to talk to children at the church at Ephesus and He's going to talk to children in Trinity Baptist Church, teenagers, of how they're to interact with their mom and their dad. He's going to talk to church members. Uh, He's going to talk to us about the Holy Spirit and how we ought to commune with him and, and how we ought not grieve him or quench him. And so he gets very, very practical. And he really what he's saying is this is how you need to walk. This this is how you walk on the basis of what God has given to us. When I think of our military, and I'm very thankful for our military, one of the things that I'm glad that we as citizens can do for our military is we can provision them. We can give them what they need to do their job. And as citizens, that ought to bring some some, uh, gladness to our hearts. We can give them what they need to do what they're asked to do. And for every uh, military, every soldier, 
they, they have different needs. They have their basic uniforms, and they have their, the boots that they need to wear, and, and they have small arms. And then there's training for all of these different things. And there's the rations, the food that they're going to need while they're out in the field, and then getting them there to the field, and then getting them off of the field when their mission is complete. But there's all kinds of preparation that goes into that. There's all kinds of training. There are different classes. Then there's being out and practicing those things and practicing maneuvers and studying and, and, and putting those things into application. But if they're going to be successful, then they need to be properly equipped. And as I look out in the auditorium this morning, Paul gives the analogy later on in the Bible of, of us as soldiers, and, and, and as he's talking here in Ephesians, he's really reiterating to us how we are equipped for the mission that we're faced with. Uh, we have what we need. Notice again in verse number one, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front what that vocation is. That vocation Wherewith we are, we are called, the great calling that God has given to every single one of us in this room to preserve and to protect, to promote, is the unity of the body of Christ. That's the context of chapter 4, down through, all the way down through verse number 16. And it's something that God is dedicated to preserving, but it's also something that you and I need to be dedicated to preserving. It's something that God has actually given us gifts to protect. But it's a calling that God has given to every single one of us. I, I, will, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you were aware that God had actually call, has actually called you to promote and protect and preserve the unity of the body of Christ? How many of you think about that on a weekly basis? What can I do? God, how can you use me to encourage fellow believers so that the body of Christ will be strengthened and preserved and protected? One of the things that Satan loves to do is pull members of the body out of the body. He loves to isolate members of the body. And what he hates is a body of believers that has beautiful unity. In Christ. He hates that. He hates it because it brings glory to God. Look back in chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church. God wants to bring himself glory and honor. In us, the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Of course, Paul in chapter 3 had been talking to us about the provisions that he had given to us. Do you remember some of those provisions? Uh, we talked about the secret of our provision being prayer to our Heavenly Father. We talked about part of that provision being the invincible indwelling of the, the invincible Holy Spirit indwelling us and his power. He talked about that being strengthened in verse number 16 of chapter 3. In, in verse number 17 of chapter 3, he talked about how Christ lives within us. And then later on, he talked about us, the need to be, uh, our, we've been provisioned with the love of God and we're to be rooted and grounded in it. And then he talked about having the fullness of God in us. We've, we have what we need. And Paul has gone to great lengths to reiterate that. Now, in verse number one, there are two particular words that we're, we be, might be uh, tempted to overlook them and, and not spend much time on them at all. And there are two of them in verse number one of chapter four. And here they are. Look there. One is the word therefore. We don't often think much of that word. We just plow right on past it. And there's another word in verse number one, and that's the word beseech. Now, there are a lot of other great words in verse number one, but I got to tell you, these two words are very, very important, and, and we need to think about them for just a moment. Um, the word therefore communicates to us, maybe you've heard it put to you this way before, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to look before to find out what for. <laughs> in other words, 
All that Paul is going to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6 begin with the word, I therefore. In other words, what Paul is saying is, what I'm about to tell you, all that I'm about to tell you, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is based upon chapters 1, 2, and 3. If you don't have chapters 1, 2, and 3, we don't have what we need for chapters 4, 5, and 6. He's going to say, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He's going to talk about unity in the local church. Uh, He's going to talk, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So he's going to get into some very practical things in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but he begins it all with, all that I'm going to tell you is based upon chapters 1, 2, and 3. What? Christ has done for you and what he's doing in your life. So he says, I therefore, he's basing all of the instruction to come, all of our responsibilities, all of our duties upon the doctrines that he has taught in the first three chapters. Can I say this? What we believe determines what we do. What we believe determines what we do. Why should I love my wife like Christ loves the church? Why should you as a wife submit yourself, why should my wife submit herself unto me as unto the Lord? Why should he do, why should she do that? Why should my kids obey me? Why should they honor me? Why should we love one another? You see, all that we've been asked to do is based upon what we have been told in the first three chapters. What we believe, Bible doctrine, if we believe what the Bible says, determines what we do. If I don't believe what the Bible says, it determines how I live my life. Is church important? Well, what should be my interaction with the church? Should I attend a service here and there? Should I invest myself in other believers? Should I love them? Why should I love them? I don't know them. Why should I get to know them? Why should I bear their burdens? Why should I intercede in prayer? I have a, my life is busy enough. We could all say this. I'm speaking for us. So what we believe determines how we walk, what we do, how we behave. And the Christian life, the Christ life, is easier Uh, It's easier to obey when we know what the Bible says. It's not based upon ignorance. It's, It's based upon what God's word says. It's based upon knowledge. It's based upon obedience to the truth of the word of God. And the better we understand Bible doctrine, the easier it is to obey Bible responsibilities. When a person says something like this, don't talk to me about doctrine. That's for the theologians. Don't talk to me about Bible doctrine. Just let me live my Christian life. That person is revealing their ignorance about how God works in the life of a believer. Or someone else might say something like this. It doesn't make any difference what you believe as long as you live right. That's a similar confession of ignorance because it absolutely does make a difference what you believe. Because what you believe determines how you behave, what you're doing. I could ask us all the question this morning, what are you doing with right doctrine? Do you value it? If God should ever lead you away from Trinity Baptist Church, let's say he moves you out of the state for a job, one of the first things you should do is seek with prayer to find a good, local, sound, Bible-teaching church. Because the Bible, being taught the Word of God, is absolutely vital to your Christian success in your life. Because what we hear, what we know the Bible says, impacts what we do. If I'm ignorant of a teaching of the Bible, then I'm not going to apply that to my life because I'm ignorant of it. I don't know of it. I haven't heard it. The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is taking God at his word. It's applying God's word to my life. It's not just believing it, not just hearing it, it's hearing it and accepting it and then putting it into practice in my life. Uh, Hold your place in Ephesians 4 and would you turn with me to 2 Timothy. It's 
to your right in your Bible, 2 Timothy. It's not far. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I, as I was studying it, this passage this week, I was thinking of you as a congregation. I was thinking of the busyness of our lives. I asked my dad this week when we were talking, I said, Dad, when you were my age, were you, how, were you overwhelmingly, were you overwhelmed with busyness? I mean, sometimes, Cindy and I talk about this, it's, it's like, and I think of you all with this as well, it's almost like sometimes, it's a good thing God made us to breathe without thinking, because we probably would die if we actually had to think about something else, because there's so much going on. You can't hardly fit it all in. So then we start looking at good things where God tells us not to forsake gathering together as a church. And we start to, we start to do that. And, uh, and I don't, as a pastor, look and, and think, you know what, these people, they, they, I don't know what church is. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking life is so busy. And they're making decisions. You know, we're just going to have a family night instead of going to church. Or, or we're just tired. We're just tired. So we're not gonna we're not gonna meet with the church. And, and and okay, forget about the gathering of the church. Let's think about the word of God. There's just a busyness, you know. Uh, so people are neglecting the word of God. They're not getting up earlier to read it. They're not reading it before they pillow their head. And and some of it's our phone. You know, I don't have my phone on me, but it's our phone. You know, we're checking some scores or we're checking or researching something else or whatever the case may be, and we, we neglect the word of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul's talking to a young pastor, and he gives him a command. And I'm going to read down through verse 4. He says, I charge thee, that's a command, I command thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now here's the charge. Preach the word. Now, he's talking to a young pastor. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Preach it when you feel like it, and preach it when you don't feel like it. And there are times when a pastor doesn't feel like preaching. You say, well, I understand that, pastor. Sometimes I don't feel like listening. All right, well, you understand then, okay? And then notice what he tells this young pastor to do when he's preaching, when he feels like it, when he doesn't. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering, suffer long, and doctrine. Doctrine. The word doctrine means Bible teaching or right teaching. When I preach the word of God, I'm supposed to teach you right doctrine. And, and as a, a member of a church or as a believer, you're to put yourself, and I'm, if ever I were not a pastor, I would be responsible to put myself and my family under the teaching of the word of God. But notice in verse number 3 what Paul tells Timothy what's going to happen. And this is something that we see in our day. He says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching, sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. What's he saying here? There's going to come a time, Peter, or excuse me, Timothy, you're to preach the word, whether you feel like it or not. You're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And that's for all of our benefits. We all need to hear that sometimes. We all need to be reproved. You're not doing the right thing. We all need to be rebuked. Stop doing the wrong thing. We all need to be encouraged. Don't we, with long-suffering and doctrine? And, and Paul tells Timothy, because you need to do this, Timothy, because there's going to come a day where people are literally going to turn away from the doctrine of the word of God. They don't want to hear it anymore. Don't bother me with this. Is the, going to be the mindset. And he says there that they're going to be turned, they're going to heap to themselves teachers. What kind of teachers? Teachers who tell them what they want to hear. How many of you like being told what you want to hear? I like that. Honey, I really think... Yeah, I don't know how many cars. I, I, I don't even know. I can't even think I can count the cars that I've wanted to buy throughout our 15-year marriage. 
that Cindy has been like, yeah, I don't really think we need that. And it's not that Cindy tells me what to do, but we do work as a team. We, we communicate. And she's, a very, she's very valuable to me. And you know what? She's in the nursery. But between you and me, I'm really glad I didn't buy any of those cars. I remember one, we, were, we had not been married long, and it was this, uh, I think it was like a Chevy Tahoe. And it was leaking oil like a sieve. It was old. It was used. It was worn out. It was leaking oil. I mean, it was an oil spot. And I remember I really wanted it. And I thought, you know, I can fix that. You know, I'm sure there was other things wrong with this thing. And I would have bought it had it not been for my wife. But you know what? I, at the time, though, looking back, I say, I'm glad I didn't buy it. But at the time, I really wanted her to tell me what I wanted to hear. Seth, I think that's a great investment. I think you should buy that. I really wanted to hear what I wanted to hear. You know, lately, as my family's been in and out of the hospital, my dad, I found, I've been reminded as an illustration here this morning, that we didn't want a doctor to come in and tell us what we wanted to hear. Your dad's okay. No big deal. Go ahead, go skiing. Sure, go ahead and cut down those five big trees. No big deal. Would that have been helpful to my dad? I'm pretty sure, had we gone ahead with that, he probably would be dead. I'm glad the doctor told us what we didn't want to hear, but what was the truth. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy here about doctrine. You need to preach the word. You need to reprove, and you need to rebuke, and you need to exhort... You know, uh, Mr. Walker's here, and, and uh, when he came out with Dr. Chambers after the, the uh, heart cath that my dad had, that was just going to be exploratory and maybe put a stint in. Worst case scenario was going to be the stint was going to be put in. So I'm sitting there with my mom, and they come out. Mr. Walker comes out with Dr. Chambers, and they walk over to us, and there's kind of this feeling like, what are they going to say? And, and, and they kind of shook their head and said, yeah, we didn't put a stint in. He needs open heart surgery. What? That wasn't an option. It was just supposed to be a heart cath to make sure he was okay and maybe a stint. No big deal. And, uh, and Mr. Walker, as he was talking to us that day, he said, and you know what? I said, don't tell my wife about, you know, pickles and olives. Don't, don't tell her, okay? Don't tell her. And I kind of smirked. And he looked at me and said, no, this is serious. And you need to take care of what you're eating, too, and what you're doing with your body. Okay, I mean, who wants to hear that? But you know what? Aren't we thankful for the truth? And that's what I'm saying. Make some application to your life in this matter. We live in a McDonald's world today where we want it. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we want to live in a Burger King world. My way, right away. And I mean quick. We don't even think about what the food actually is. Or how, did they even cook it? No, It was some like, and it's hot, and we don't care. We don't care what it is. We don't care about the, the, we don't care about the properties that make it, or the, whatever else is in it. We just don't care. We just go through life. And you know what? That attitude has infected us as believers. Don't bother me. I, I don't have time for some of this deeper stuff. Just give me the frothy top. Just enough to make it through life, some good spiritual things, and maybe a nice illustration to give me goosebumps and make me cry a little bit, and then I'm good to go. And you know what? We don't want to be bothered with the doctrine of the Word of God. And folks, we're wrong. We're wrong. Look at verse number four of 2 Timothy chapter four. He says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. What's a fable? It's a story. It's a story. Don't bother me with doctrine. Just tell me a good story. I don't have time to come back Sunday nights to hear the book of Revelation preached verse by verse. I got better things to do with my time. That's a decision every one of us have to make, and we do. We do. 
as a pastoral staff, we, some years ago, we talked about preaching. We talked about styles of preaching. We talked about the importance of preaching, the purpose for preaching. We talked about these sort of things. And it's not to tickle your ears. It's not to impress you. No one, you might disagree with me on this, no one hates boring sermons more than me. You say, well, I might. (laughs) Okay, it may be close. But no one hates boring sermons more than me. I like when you laugh. I like when there's interaction. I love when you smile. I like, there's nothing more that I would like than for you to enjoy everything that I do and say. But you know what? That'd be an awful lot Seth-centered. And my responsibility, as Paul told Timothy, is you preach the word of God, and you reprove when you need to, and you rebuke when you need to, and you encourage all the time, with long-suffering and doctrine. You must do it. You must do it because there is going to come a day where people in the, in the world, in society, are just going to be like, you know what? This just isn't getting it done for me. And I'm going to go find teachers who will tell me what I want to hear. And I'm going to turn away from the doctrine of the Word of God. And what Paul is saying here, just by the simple word, therefore, back in Ephesians chapter 4 is, the doctrine that I've taught you is everything. Because you will never walk the way that you should walk if you don't believe what I have told you to be true. If you don't know it. If you don't know it. Look back there, chapter 4 of Ephesians. There's another important word, and that's the word beseech. That's the word beseech. Look there again. He says, I therefore, based upon what I've told you, Based upon this knowledge, and it's not all easy to understand. Based upon what I've told you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, the prisoner of the Lord. uh, He was in prison. He's writing from prison. Some of you might feel like you're in prison. Cancer. You can't leave, even though you'd like to. And Paul, while he's in prison, what is he doing? He's writing to churches. He's praying for pastors. He's praying for churches. He's praying for all who are in authority. He's given his life now to prayer and the study of the word of God and burden for believers. And he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy. Beseech. Um, It's not just Paul beseeching, though, because Paul is writing down the message from God to these believers. And so it's our Heavenly Father beseeching, pleading, urging, in love, urging the church at Ephesus to live for his glory. Urging us to live and be committed and dedicated to what he's committed to and what he's dedicated to. I can remember as a uh, college student when I was first starting in college as an 18, 19 year old. And uh, I did not honor my parents. I did not honor, I was not a good steward with my time or the investment, my own money or my parents' money investing for me to go to college. And my dad wouldn't call me from time to time. My mom would write me an encouraging letter. Make sure you're putting the time into study set that you need to. I didn't have the right priorities. I didn't love God like I should love him. And I can remember at one point, and, and this would have been very vexing to my father looking back on it, He's, they're making sacrifices in the Ferguson home, still with three children in the home. Sets off at Bible college, and he's not doing well. And I remember my dad sitting down with me and, and trying to talk with me as a man. My eyes glazed over, looking off at a door, wishing I could leave. Ungrateful for the sacrifices he had made. Foolish, not caring, thinking about things that I wish I had that I didn't have. What I wanted to do that I couldn't do. And when I, when I think back to that time in my life, I kind of think about us a little bit. 
My dad, as he sat there with me, was imploring me to do the right thing. Grow up. Have the right priorities. Put in the work. Put in the effort. And God's going to reward you. My heart wasn't in it. And I wasted and I squandered years of my life. I had to learn the hard way. And I dragged some other people that I loved through it. And, as, and it, my dad urged me, he besought me, and here we have our Heavenly Father, and he's not just beseeching the church at Ephesus from some 2,000 years ago, he's beseeching us. Through the Apostle Paul, I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. My dad would tell me, hey, we're driving an old vehicle, so you can be here and do this. I didn't care. I didn't value the sacrifices. I didn't value, you think about that, how horrific it is, the love of a father to his son, the love of a mom and a dad to their son. And then I think about the love of our Heavenly Father to us. And he, in a sense, is urging us. He's urging you. Through the Apostle Paul, through me, through his word, I beseech you. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he, talked, he used the same verbiage back in Romans chapter 12. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I've saved your soul. I've chosen you. I've, I've made you, I've quickened you, I've taken you from death and given you life. I've forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. And we say, and the Bible says, we love you because you first loved us. And he's saying, then love me. Throw in with me. Be dedicated to what I'm dedicated to. It doesn't mean that you still don't work a job and have some niceties of this world. We live in this society. It's not that you don't go on a vacation ever. I hope you understand this. But at the heart of who we are as the children of God, the most important thing in our lives are not the niceties of this world because we know they're going to pass away. It's that we value what God values. And, and, and notice what, it, that, what he values. In this passage, he's talking about unity. Of God's people. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And the vocation that we have been called to is the unity of God's people. And this unity is an incredibly precious gift from God. I love it. I've grown to love it. I can remember as an evangelist, I would travel around to go to different churches and I would preach for a week and then I would leave and go to another church and preach for a week. And some of the churches I preached to were larger than Trinity and some of them were smaller than Trinity. I remember preaching to one, it was a church plant, it was a Bible church out not far from the Delaware River uh, in Pennsylvania, not far from where Washington crossed the Delaware. And um, they met in the basement of a Dunkin' Donuts. There were about 35 of them. It was a church called out assembly of born-again believers. And I can remember going down, and I remember the first time I went there, and Pastor White got the sign, and he pulled it out, and he set it out in the parking lot, you know, and he unlocked the door, and I'm looking around like, where's the church? Never been there before, and down we went into the basement of a Dunkin' Donuts. And it was all set up, meeting place, and the people began to come, and the love they had for one another. And I remember Cindy saying to me as we left, after that week of meeting, she said, Seth, I really think that that is what church is all about. They couldn't even have a sign out at the road. They didn't have any kind of a steeple. Their building didn't look like a church building but they were a church, a body of born-again believers welded together by the Spirit of God. And as I traveled for year after year after year, and now that I've pastored for a little over five years, the unity of God's people is incredibly precious. And it is something that God does. 
I mean, look around the room. There are people of different ages. There are people of different incomes. There are people of different, some are ill, some are healthy. There are people of all different, across the spectrum. And yet the Spirit of God who lives within us, who has saved our soul, there's an incredible unity. You know what? What Paul is saying here is your calling is to preserve that unity. Your calling is to be dedicated to being unified. Now, unity is not uniformity. You know what? So we can have good unity here at Trinity. We're all going to wear the same things. We're all going to shop in the same stores. Obviously, it'll have to be what I'm wearing. We'll go with that. That's not unity. Uniformity is pressure from without to conform to something. Unity comes from pressure or leading from within. The Spirit of God. And he's talked about that in chapter 3. Strengthened by the Spirit of God. In other words, when I say yes to the Holy Spirit, and I'll use this as an illustration, when I say yes to the Holy Spirit, and my wife is saying yes to the Holy Spirit, there is harmony and unity. Do I need to give the negative side? You who are married? When, when a mom and dad are filled with the Spirit and their children are saying yes to the Holy Spirit as well, there is incredible unity in the home. But you toss in a young person who's saying no to the Holy Spirit of God, and all of a sudden, you don't have unity in the home. And the same is true for a church. You know, as I'm saying yes to the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, a Dan Holflinger is saying yes to the Holy Spirit, and a Bob Good, and a Bob Lunny, there is tremendous unity. Unity is a, an incredible, precious gift of God. Notice here in chapter 4, down to verse number 13. We're, we're coming to a close here. Uh, chapter 4 and verse number 13, and I'm going to read down through verse number 16. Notice what he says. He says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect, a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, the deception of men, and the cunning and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. He's talking about unity and us edifying one another. And so really, this unity is a gift of God. Look at verse number 3. We see it's of the Holy Spirit, actually. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. The unity that he desires is something the Holy Spirit of God actually is the one who accomplishes. But wait a minute, I can quench the Spirit, personally. I can extinguish his influence. That's the idea of the word quench. Put it out. Or I can grieve the Holy Spirit. Literally, cause him. the idea is to cause him to weep, to cause him grief. I can cause him that. And you can too. The Holy Spirit is actively at work in us as a church that we might be unified. And so he's saying, walk worthy of this vocation. How do we walk worthy? Well, look at verse number 2. And he gives us several actions. Walk with all lowliness. Really more of a description. This is something the Spirit of God will do. He'll do it in you if you'll let him. Lowliness. The word lowliness means humility. It's been said that humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. I think I've come to humility, honey, finally. No, you're not. Humility means putting Christ first, others second, and self last. Lowliness, humility means knowing ourselves, accepting ourselves, and being ourselves to the glory of God. You say, that sounds kind of worldly. Well, 
Romans 12.3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, honestly, according as, every, as God hath dealt to, it, to every man the measure of faith. God doesn't want us to think more highly than we ought to think of ourselves. Neither does he want us to think less of ourselves than, than we ought to think. Like, maybe something like this. You know what? They, don't even, they won't even miss me if I'm not there. That's thinking less of yourself than you ought to think. You better believe the church misses you when you're not here. There might not be a welcoming committee when you come back. You may not get a phone call. But you better believe the church misses you when you're not here. I talked to a, a believer, one of our believers, part of the membership here at Trinity, just this week. And, and uh, the dear saint made the comment, the observation, I don't think people realize how much it hurts the body when they leave. That's true. That's true. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, me included, but let us not think less of ourselves than we ought to either. He goes on in verse number two. He says, with lowliness and meekness. Meekness. Isn't that something that every man ought to strive for? I'm sure it's something we all were born to strive for, right? Meekness. I want to be meek. What does that mean, meekness? The word meekness means strength, power, under control. Yeah, it's awesome. I ought to teach my sons to be meek, be strong, but be under control. It's not to the glory of God when a man is powerful and can wreak havoc in his home as he throws a temper tantrum. There's nothing to the honor and glory of God. Meekness. And he's talking about it in the sense of a church. A church is unified. It has this beautiful unity when we're lowly of mind and we're meek. Moses was very meek. The Bible says in Numbers, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, but he exercised incredible power. The Greeks used this word meekness, this, their Greek word for meekness, to refer to a soothing medicine. It had incredible power, but it soothed. They referred to, they used that word to talk about a colt that had been broken. Or a gentle wind. And in each case, you have power, but power that is under control. In Matthew 11, verse 29, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was meek and lowly of heart, but yet he still drove out the money changers out of the temple. Look again in verse number 2. With long-suffering. These are all characteristics that promote unity in the church. Long-suffering. Long-suffering means long-tempered. Temper. It's a, a smelting term, or a, a term that's used with steel. They temper the steel, right? Some, sort, some metals are very brittle. They break easily. Not much strength. But steel, after it's been heated, and it goes through that process, that steel can be literally bent. And it will not break. You and I as God's children, you and I as church members, that's what Paul is addressing them as, church members. You need to be long-suffering. I need to be long-suffering. Have you ever, ever been a part of something and you're like, you know what, I just, that's it, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> that's it, I'm done. I, I'm at my breaking point. You ever been there? Yes, church members, you and I ought to be willing to suffer long. Now, we ought not overlook sin. We ought to hold the right doctrine. But we ought to be willing to suffer long. And that's what he's saying here. Should we be dedicated to suffering long? And the answer is yes. Look, look again here uh, at verse number two. Forbearing one another. Forbearing one another. The word forbear means to endure or suffer. I'm supposed to even be willing to suffer? It, it, it has the idea of to put up with. You need to put up with one another. Now, of course, none of us in this room have to be put up with. But this might apply to another church somewhere else. That was a joke. Um, but you know what? We have to forbear one another. He has to actually tell us this. Forbear, be willing to put up with one another. Endure. Um, and, and notice he says forbearing in love. And you know, there really is no... 
There really is no forbearing. There's no willingness to endure without love. Charity suffereth long. And then in verse number 3, notice he says we're to endeavor. Endeavoring, he says in verse number 3, endeavoring to keep the unity. That word endeavoring has the idea of being eager to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit of God has accomplished. Being eager, endeavoring, working at it. Newlyweds are often advised to work at their marriage. I once heard an elderly lady talking to the newlywed couple, and she basically said, it's great that you love one another, but if your love is going to continue, you need to work at it. I'm like, you know, you could have waited until after the cake, but you know what, hey, that's okay. It's true. You know, they, they, I suppose they need to hear it. The verb endeavoring, you're going to love this. It's a present participle. You say, that blessed my blesser this morning, pastor, thanks. But here's what it means. It, it communicates continuous action. When he says endeavoring to keep the unity, he's literally saying, you never stop working to keep the unity. You never stop. We need to continually work at maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And then he says, in the bond of peace. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but in James chapter 3, the middle part down through the middle part of the next chapter, chapter 4, it really is the most vivid treatment in all the Bible, I think, of war and peace. And let me summarize for you what it says. The reason for war on the outside is because there's a war on the inside. The reason church members fight, and I'm unaware of any fighting in our membership, thank the Lord, but the reason church members quarrel and fight and argue is because in their hearts, they're quarreling and fighting and arguing with God. And I believe that's true. I believe it's true for a marriage. The reason there's quarreling and fighting between a husband and wife is because somewhere along the line, and maybe it's a a 10-minute period, maybe it's a 10-year period, the reason there's fighting and quarreling between a husband and wife is because there's fighting and quarreling at least in the part of one of them, probably in the part of two of them. There's a fighting, there's a war, there's an argument between them and God. God's saying, do this. And they're saying, I'm not doing that. And it shows up in personal relationship. This is so practical. He brings us back to doctrine in verse 4. He says, there's one body. That's the body of Christ. One spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. He indwells his children, even as ye are called. In one hope of your calling, we have this blessed hope for Christ's return. One Lord and that word Lord means, is the Greek word kurios, the supreme authority of heaven and earth. There is one faith, that's salvation. There's one baptism, that's sanctification. And there's one God and Father of all who's above all and, and through all and in you all. He is dedicated to your unity. And should not we be dedicated to that unity? I'll close with this. A.W. Tozer wrote the following. He says, As it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other. They're not tuned to one another, but to another standard, the tuning fork, to which each one must individually bow. Every piano bows to the one tuning fork. It submits to its tune. And so he says, 100 worshipers meeting together. Each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You see, ultimately unity is not the point as much as it is for each one of us individually to be conscious of saying yes to the word of God, and to the spirit of God. You see, if Jeff Lang will say yes to the word of God and the spirit of God, and I will say yes to the word of God and the spirit of God, there will be unity between us. 
or Ken Spence or whoever else. This is the tuning fork. And we are the pianos in that illustration. It is our responsibility to submit to the word of God and the spirit of God. And the product is a beautiful, God-honoring church. I want to be a part of a church like that. Don't you? And by the way, the moment that you and I, and and, and we need to be careful of this, because we have a wonderful church that God has built. But the moment that we look around and go, you know what? I think we're doing pretty good. Is the very moment that the devil will find a way in. And he will wreak havoc. You and I need to be on guard. We need to follow and say yes to the Spirit of God and His Word. Let's take our hymnals and let's close with a a hymn. Uh, Hymn number 521, I believe it is. Channels only, 521. And uh, let's all stand to our feet and let's uh, sing this hymn. It's an old hymn, but it, it talks about that we're just a channel through which God accomplishes His purpose and His power. Um... And let's sing it out as unto the Lord, shall we?